Robert Deering is the author of So Beautiful, a collection of short stories, and the book is published by Porcupine's Quill Press in Erin, Ontario. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. This is your first book? Correct. My only. One of the things that came through in the selection of stories was a matter-of-factness that was quite grim, this sense of darkness underlying a lot of the stories. For example, the first story in the book is not even underlying. She finds this, this young woman comes across a garbage bag with <laughs> the chopped up limbs of a dead body in it. Where, where do you get this stuff from? A friend of mine actually had that experience of finding a garbage bag, an oversized garbage bag, in Philadelphia, and it turned out that it had a body in it, and, and she did find it in a wooded area, so I transposed it to a ravine in Toronto because I was familiar with that landscape, which seems to be important to me, and also the way people talk is important, so I couldn't write Philadelphia into that story. And I was actually very worried about it because this is an incredible experience for a person to have, and here I turn it into fiction, and there's a certain disgrace in that, I think. And but she wasn't a family member. No, but she's a very good friend. So I showed it to her. I didn't ask permission. I, you know, I just stole the story from her. But I felt that it, it possibly would make her quite uncomfortable because it was her experience. And um, she actually felt that I had validated this horrific thing that she had gone through, even though there's very little in the story that's about her but she actually felt quite at peace with what I had done. But I don't see that as a story of despair. I tried to cram as many giant issues into that story as I could, just partly out of fun, and also because I think a body in a bag almost demands it. And there's a lot in there about honor and respect and doing the right thing. Calling the police and, yeah. and uh, calling upon th this older man that she runs to and asks to sort of share the experience yes. with him and he can even yeah. say it's interesting how at the beginning it goes through his mind that she's some sort of a weirdo that he doesn't yeah. want to have anything to do with and then realizes yeah. that she really is in distress and it really yeah. is what she thinks it is. But in the end he is consumed even though he is patronizing her at first mm -hmm. and being racist. He is wanting very much to do the right thing and so they're very much at linked in that way because Letitia, the woman who originally found the body in the bag, is also very much about justice and finding justice. And I actually find that this story somewhat hopeful because at the end, that main character, Lyle, or he's the other co-main character, I guess, he realizes he needs to talk to his wife about other things that are going on, but he realizes he needs to reach out and that's how the story ends, which I think is probably different from most of the other stories. And he's come to an understanding, and I find that pretty exciting, <laughs> because you don't necessarily control what they're going to do <laughs> when you're writing them, or at least I don't, you know? But that really feels to me like the right ending. Lyle, the character, has a daughter who has a son, and they've just sort of taken off and left his life rather abruptly, and you can't help, like, as the reader couldn't help connecting, obviously, the contents of the bag with what may or may not have happened to, the, to his family. You think, does this run through his mind, you think? Or oh, do you mean that it's possible that his grandson's been murdered? Yeah, or the, or the, or the daughter, or, or whatever. 
just this sense of abrupt loss? It could be read that way. It's certainly not what I was thinking when I was writing it, but if someone reads it that way, it's, it's valid, I think. But there is that same, there's probably nothing more horrible than being told that your son has been found inside a garbage bag. You know, there is some unbelievable indignity, as I keep saying about that, and, and, mm -hmm. and I think that's really a lot, a lot of what I was writing was I kept realizing, you know, a body in a bag is such a horrible thing that for one human being to do that to another, and so dignity keeps coming up and doing the right thing. Anyway, I, I think that there, it's also completely horrible on a different level to have an innocent person in your life taken away and you don't know where they are and you don't know if they're okay. So your thoughts perhaps will run in a morbid direction as you just suggested. Let me just read this little section here. The lump of flesh he'd poked with the stick owned by a fellow who might have played soccer yesterday or gotten a speeding ticket or a woman who might have just had her hair cut or maybe had a cold Maybe the last thing she did of her own free will was cough. That's pretty bad. And I, I thought that was the strong, and again, here's me, the critic, okay, the reader. I thought that, and then the final story in the book. So the first story and the last story called An Apology, which is uh, probably about as relevant to the Newfoundland experience as you can get, or at least this is what puts Newfoundland into the headlines, or did. The trial of a Christian yeah. brother, yeah, who had uh, abused uh, dozens of, of young boys. At Mount Cashel, yeah. Again, you did, you sort of flip back and forth, at least as in this reader's mind, between this little dog that he had at, at home. He, he left the rock to go to Stratford to live there in his parents' home, I guess. He'd gotten himself a little dog, so he was. He was really quite concerned about that dog. Mm -hmm. And you juxtapose that with these rather horrific bits of testimony from the boys themselves who are now in their 40s and 50s. Contrast seems to be something that you do in quite a few of your stories. Yeah. Just one thing I should say is that this story is not factual, so in reality there would be, I think there were probably zero Christian brothers who came from Stratford, Ontario, but for me, as an outsider, this is always present in my writing, as an outsider living in St. John's, I just can't pretend that I'm a Newfoundlander. And so that's, I moved him, I'm from Ontario, I moved the Christian brother to Ontario, and I needed to do that to understand who he was and how he could do the things that he did. Yeah, there is, I think that is a structure that I, that kind of parallel structure, I think that's something that I, I do work with a fair amount, mm -hmm. and I don't know why, I don't know where it comes from. But I can tell you why there's a dog in the story. <laughs> a lot of dogs in that book, actually. I covered some of the latter-day Mount Cashel trials as a reporter. And at that time, the very, very cute dog now lying on the carpet in front of us as we speak was a puppy. And I would go home. I would have been in court all day listening to men who were roughly my father's age, listen to them cry on the stand and say things that you just know that no man of that age ever wants to tell anyone. It just really bothered me, obviously. I'm, I'm sure it bothered everyone from the court clerks to the judge to the lawyers to, I'm sure, the, the, the brother himself. But it was very, 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 very disturbing to hear these things 
from men of that age for me <laughs> because I understood the social conditioning that they had been raised with and how very, very difficult it would be to stand in public and say in very graphic terms, this was done to me and that was done to me. And so I would come out of court feeling horrible. You know, I'd write my stories and go home. And I had this little dog, that this little puppy that needed to be walked. And so I would take her from my house up Signal Hill every night. And it was the summertime. And we would be gone for a couple of hours. And by the time I started coming back down the hill, I started to feel somewhat human again. Like literally not as nauseous as I had been. And so I think that's why the dog is actually such a symbol of innocence in the story. Interesting, isn't it? The way that this uh, this character, Christian brother, has this proprietary love-hate relationship, both with the dog and with the, the, the kid. It's as if they're his property. Mm-hmm. Now that you tell me this, this makes sense. It really does have the ring of truth that I think is a, is one of the tenets of good fiction. It's credible, and it's credible because you were there. Well, th- there was a lot of talk during the trial about the work that the brothers did and, and it's quite sad that you know the order will be remembered for the sexual abuse systemic abuse because those men and they were young at the time mm-hmm. that they signed up they were in their 20s they worked so hard under very very difficult circumstances that was made very clear at the trial and you couldn't help but have sympathy for them and and the way a trial works is that when one person is up on the stand you believe them and then when the other person gets up you believe them and I don't know how judges and lawyers and juries sort through it all (laughs) because it's very uh, difficult job but I also really wanted to retain a strong sense of how for his generation because he's older just he's maybe 20 years older than these men who are accusing him of molesting them for his generation to be accused of doing this is the most unbelievable event that could ever happen to you and his real sense of betrayal about that, that anyone can even harbor these thoughts about him. So it was trying to play it both ways. It's tricky, you know? Yeah, it's it's also interesting the way you captured his disdain for these these men. It's without really appreciating perhaps that he was the bastard that got them screwed up in the first place. He's, mm-hmm. He dismisses them as being abusive and alcoholics and, and liars and having miserable lives. And a lot of them went to jail. A lot of them a had of criminal them sentences. Drugs. Exactly, but yeah. without perhaps owning the fact that that his behavior may well have put them in that place. Yeah. There's an, I, I like this little passage here. I'll read these two short paragraphs. They've got something else in common. They've disappointed anyone who ever came into their lives, including Gerard. Gerard's the... The brother. The brother. Their fathers were alcoholics or thieves or dead, and their mothers were sluts or mad or dead. Now they're men looking to blame, to make someone accountable for their empty spots. And who better than Gerard? They remember him making them sit on their bleeding hands as was common in those times, and they want revenge. They want to make him sit on his own bleeding hands and get a taste of himself. I thought that was particularly powerful because, because of course, he's, he tastes them, doesn't he? In a, in a, 
performing fellatio on them. Hmm. Now, it's interesting in a work of uh, short stories how, again, the reader, at least this reader, found that those two stories were the strongest and that in between uh, it wasn't a satisfaction. I was left feeling frustrated and dissatisfied. Just in, in a similar way that I would reading Kafka. Is there a hierarchy in these stories? Do you think that certain ones are better than others? Well, I suppose everybody thinks that, but I think maybe you like uh, stories that are from a male point of view. That's interesting. Because I go back and forth mm-hmm. between male and female points of view in the story, but those two that you've picked are both male point of view stories. You, perhaps you have an affinity for 65-year-old men, <laughs> because I do. I've, I've, there's something that I find really interesting about writing about men of that age, and so that's Lyle in the first story and the Christian brother in the last story. Yeah, and I don't know why I have that affinity, because I think it's an unusual thing for a woman of my age. That may be correct, but I just found the first and the last stories the most satisfying, just in terms of um, fully describing what was going on, whereas the others I felt were a lot more tangential and, and splintered. Did you say that's fair? <laughs> um, I... I think it's a great book. <laughs> That's my blood in there. <laughs> so if, if you want me to, you know, tell you that I think some of the stories are weak, I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm just not in that position. I'm really, no, I'm really I want that. proud of the book. I, I, I don't think I want that. And again, uh, once, I, mean, I think it takes a great deal of uh, courage for anyone to, to write anything and put it out. But inevitably... Some readers are going to find some work of the work stronger, better than, than the other. I, I'm surprised that you don't have a story that you think is stronger or weaker. Oh, I have my favorites, for sure. Which ones are those? An apology is is one of them, and, and so is getting a message through to, the girl, through to the girl. That's the first story. There are lots of stories that I quite like in this book. I really like Giuliani's Zipper, which is probably to your mind a bit of fluff. Which one was that? That's the uh, the two people who are competing for the the contract to build the uh, skateboard park. I really like fascia yeah. and ketchup boy. Anyway, yeah. obviously I'm biased. I'm speaking with uh, Ramona Deering, who's the author of So Beautiful, a book of uh, short stories that was written a few years ago, published by uh, Porcupine's Quill. I bring up uh, uh, Kafka because of his dark and there's the frustration that the reader typically will feel reading Kafka's short stories. The search, this constant searching for an answer that really just isn't there. Now, Ramona, you work for the CDC, so perhaps Kafka is someone that, uh, just from your working experience, you might be familiar with. <laughs> no, <laughs> but... He's, he's had no involvement with my, my life at CBC. <laughs> not thing not. you were fishing for there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not knowing why you're doing things, for example, or being told to do things that are... Okay, well, we'll stop there. <laughs> yes, uh, I work for radio. Radio stop. is completely addictive, yes. and there's probably no more satisfying medium, although, of course, everyone has their own preferences, but particularly doing radio in Newfoundland, it means so much to people, and they actually tell you that. 
uh, because as we've noticed, this is quite a talkative place. And uh, so I, uh, although there, there may be, you know, certain difficulties with the, the top of, of our organization, um, I, I really wouldn't describe CBC as Kafkaesque. I really wouldn't. And it's been an absolute privilege. I know I'm probably getting totally boring now, aren't I? But uh, it really is a privilege to do radio. Well, I mean, you're doing radio. You love it, right? It, and it is a lovely, romantic image of the people in these far-blown outports listening uh, to the to the radio that sort of unites them and brings them together. And uh, you must feel that sense of uh, community working in, in that medium. And we were locked out for two months last year, and um, <laughs> I started to get really worried about people not getting their weather forecast <laughs> um, because had it continued into the winter, it really is life or death, like in Labrador. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you, there's something very humbling and important to understand about that. That, mm -hmm. you know, if, like you, if, you're going out on, if you're going out on Skidoo, out on the ice, mm -hmm. and there's a blizzard coming, you know, I'd really like our listeners to know that. That's more important than any political story. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it's very frustrating at times because you really want to tell the political story, but the weather forecast is so bloody long in this place that, you know, your other stories at times get squeezed, but it's still, it's a very good reminder. Mm -hmm. Still this close connection to, to the land and the, and the climate, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, whereas you might not feel that in the insular downtown Toronto You're currently working on a novel. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. It's about two sisters and a baby. Okay. <laughs> and it's set here and in Labrador. And it uh, takes place during a, a car trip. Sounds like Thelma and Louise. Or? It is a little bit. I'm <laughs> a bit concerned about that right now. But I'll get that all worked out. <laughs> Nobody dies. What about Brad Pitt? You got him going in there somewhere? <laughs> I wouldn't know how to write Brad Pitt. I wouldn't know how to get into his head. But I think you'll find that it's, um, in some ways, a happier book. I can't stop the humor, or at least, you know, one always worries. When I say humor, you might, you know, it might fall flat for you, especially you, um, <laughs> if it was in the middle of the book. <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, even though there's some serious and sad stuff at the core of this. So that's all a bit of a juggle, isn't it? Probably why it's not done yet. How long did it be in the works? Oh, sixteen years. <laughs> How does one begin to count? <laughs> mm -hmm. I've started writing this thing so many times I can't believe it, and I finally realized that every time I restarted writing the novel, like I'd start, I'd get thirty pages in or fifty pages in, and I'd go, I don't know where this is going. I'm gonna stop and start all over again. I have the solution. And I, when I finally looked back at all of those starts, I realized that they were all essentially the same story, and that I might as well just get on with it. I sort of wish I had arrived at that conclusion a few years earlier, but I would say that I've been I've been working on this version for a couple of years. But let's just say it's probably you know it's probably five years now, really. Now I'm still working on a first draft, and it's going to take. I I love redrafting, 
Mm. I love rewriting. Mm. Although I think it's going to be hard with a novel. Uh, you know, my short stories are pretty short. Yes, and so I find it very odd to not know what is on page 15. You, you actually have to go and look at page 15, and then you forget what's on page 72 when you do that. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious as to how that's going to go. But I think the beauty of a novel is that you can... You have to approach it differently so that I can go back and, and do one draft that's redraft that's focusing on one character or perhaps two since they have to interact. But you can break it up, I think. Just keep combing through various parts until you you feel like the whole is, is fleshed out the way that hopefully this is manageable. I'd like to get it. I have an idea in my head of how it will read, but it's definitely not there yet. But I like it. And I'm really enjoying staying with these people. Mm. They talk to me all the time, these sisters. They talk to each other all the time. There's a disturbing amount of dialogue in this novel. <laughs> I've been with these girls for a long time now. One of the lovely things about, uh, about writing a novel is, is, is that uh, although you're solitary, you're, you're not alone. It's a, it's a nice contrast to having to be alone to be with them. Yes, but you're very alone when it's going badly. That's the despair part, the horrible part. I've had a fair amount of that, as you can tell from the tone of my voice. Frustrating, sure, taking yeah. care, and then take, yeah, as you say, if it's been that many years... It's, it's the doubt. It's, at some point, just want to get the damn thing out. I think a lot of people believe a novel is a seven-year beast. Maybe that's part of it. I can't picture saying goodbye to them, and, and if this thing ever makes it to print... I think you do say goodbye. Yeah, I, I've heard Something that from ends. others. Yeah, there's a yeah. Uh, Paul Muldoon, the, the, the great uh, Irish American poet, says exactly that. Mm. It's, it's, while it takes place, it's epiphany, it's an experience with the muse, and it's wonderful. But then you let go of your little children, and they're off in the world, and you move on. It's true, but what gives me hope is that I, I keep thinking, even in my darkest moments, I think. I can't wait to write the second novel. I wonder what that's going to be about. <laughs> mm. Well, I look forward to meeting these sisters and their children. And uh, best of luck in, uh, in getting them out the door. Thank you. I've been speaking with uh, Ramona Deering, who is the author of a book of short stories called So Beautiful in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland. Thanks again. Thanks.